we learn that the professor was fond of quoting Shakespeare, John Donne, and Gertrude Stein. So maybe there's going to be some more weird mashups coming. I don't know. (laughs) I want more Gertrude Stein, please. Welcome to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to taking a deep dive into the television that we're obsessed with. Previously, we analyzed the heck out of Mr. Robot with Nathan Matice. This time around, we're going to be delving into Westworld, and we'll be looking at it every week, dissecting every possible meaning, and pulling out all of the Easter eggs for you. I'm Annalee Newitz, Ars Technica's tech culture editor, And my guest this week is the award-winning science fiction author, Charlie Jane Anders, who also writes a lot about science fiction for places like Wired and other publications online. And actually, Charlie Jane and I are the founders of io9, which is a science fiction website that you might have heard of somewhere on the interwebs. And so it's great to have her here and get to chat about science fiction like old times and maybe disagree a little bit, but I think... I think we're mostly on the same page about Westworld. So, all right, let's get started. Thanks for joining me on the show, Charlie Jane. So great to be here. So first, before we get started talking about some of the themes in this episode, let's talk about whether it was just good. I mean, did you like it? Are you excited about the show? Yeah, I liked it a lot. And actually rewatching it a second time, I was really struck by how many powerful moments they packed into one opening episode and how, you know, I actually felt like it covered a lot of ground in like an hour and, and laid a lot of really interesting track. So one of the things that we learn in this episode is that uh, the theme park is actually not what it seems. There's a lot of different conspiracies going on. So let's let's go through the conspiracies one by one. Okay. So first conspiracy is, um, maybe it's just a conspiracy of one, but Ford, who is the creator of the park, played by Anthony Hopkins in full Anthony Hopkins mode, um, <laughs> he has rolled out an update that nobody knew about that's kind of wrecking havoc and we find out that the update it's supposed to change the gestures that the robots have and make them have more realistic gestures but actually the update is allowing the robots to access memories of previous experiences they've had in the park did you see it no give it a second she'll do it again her finger that's not standard i noticed it last night when looking in the update It's a whole new class of gestures. It's the tiny things that make them seem real. That make the guests fall in love with them. So that's number one. And and we don't really know why he's made this update. He clearly has other motivations besides just making the more the robots more realistic. Okay, so what's what's another conspiracy that we've got going? Well, obviously Ed Harris is playing a character called the Man in Black who believes that there's a hidden level inside the game and he's trying to find it and he tracks down somebody and cuts his scalp off and there's some kind of map that we see that's like a maze almost and he's trying to track down the meaning of that towards the end of the episode yeah and he says something like it's a it's a game you know everyone's here just fooling around but i'm the only one who's really playing Uh, i'm paraphrasing he doesn't i don't think he (laughs) he uses the words fooling around right And then um, what about uh, Jeffrey Wright's character, Bernard, the head programmer? I mean, I feel like he's got something going on, too. He's so he's obviously got something up his sleeve. And I noticed at the end of the episode uh, when the dad, uh, Dolores's father, who's one of the robots, is led away 
uh, we see Bernard kind of lean over and whisper something in his ear, and it kind of makes the robot cry. It seems like it upsets him. And it seems like there's something going on there, but we don't know what it is. And we do know that he's also been, I mean, he's been working closely with Ford, although he did not know about the update. Right. Um, and he, he has some kind of weird relationship with Dolores, too, where he seems like he's he's kind of tinkering around in her programming in ways that uh, are not necessarily called for. There's another conspiracy between um, the head of ops and uh, and some kind of mysterious investors that we hear about a little bit when she talks to the guy who's the head of narrative. They have this kind right. of weird conversation. So t- tell us about that. I mean, he just kind of hints that he thinks that there's something else going on that's sort of nefarious. And she's like, well, you don't know what it is, but you, so you're no use to me. And we don't really find out what it is. And meanwhile, there's all this other weird stuff that we glimpse. Like, you know, f- whenever a fly lands on somebody, it makes them kind of start twitching and freaking out because I guess the robots want to swat the fly, but they can't. But then at the end of the episode, uh, Dolores does swat a fly. And even though she said she would never hurt a living thing, she actually does kill a fly at the end of the episode. And that's kind of a dramatic thing after flies have been kind of a thing that was a problem for people earlier in the episode. And when you say people, of course, what you mean is robots. I mean because, robots, yeah. Yeah, every time we... There's several really creepy scenes with basically flies crawling over people's eyes, crawl, crawling <laughs> right. over robots' faces and eyes. And yeah, they they never are disturbed <clears throat> by them until they until this update happens and suddenly they're, they're freaking out or right. well, literally melting down in some cases. So that's a really interesting thing. I kept thinking maybe that that was kind of symbolic of just the fact that there's now a bug that's been introduced <laughs> to to the robots. But I think, I, I bet you're right that um, it also has to do with, you know, would you hurt a fly? Yeah, I think they're not supposed to be able to hurt any living thing, even just flies. And, you know, the horses are, are robots, but the flies are real, and so they can't hurt them until uh, their program starts glitching, and then they kind of want to. And that's my interpretation of it, watching it a second time. There's a bunch of scenes where flies land on a robot's face, and they start kind of twitching and freaking out. And then at the end, Dolores just, like, calmly kills a fly, and it's just like, boom. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a lot of other cool little details, I mean, that you could just be pulling apart forever in this episode. One of the things that I noticed, because I... Uh, obsessively watched the first version of this story, which is a 1973 movie called Westworld, written by Michael Crichton, who also wrote Jurassic Park, which is about another crazy uh, amusement park. When the robots are are retired, um, and they're or this or the livestock is retired, they're taken down below the theme park into this creepy flooded uh, area that looks kind of like a dead mall and when we go down into that space one of the things we see is this kind of rusted globe with the letters delos on it this is a reference to the 1973 movie which is about a theme park called westworld and it's owned by a company that's called delos the theme park itself is called delos and so uh, clearly this new westworld park is is built on top of that other Westworld park. So there's a a long history now that's been established with this little kind of Easter egg there. And then, of course, there's the Shakespeare quotes that we get. 
Right, which just sort of, you know, they're sort of one of the creepy things that happens is that people start quoting Shakespeare and it's kind of disturbing and, and messed up. And, you know, the big one is uh, the, the dad, whose name I can't remember, whispers to Dolores, these violent delights have violent ends, which you were looking up earlier. <laughs> That's from Romeo and Juliet. And that becomes, uh, you know, pay attention to that because that phrase these violent delights have violent ends uh, become it becomes really important uh, to the series later on. And then, of course, Dolores's dad, he's quoting a bunch of Shakespeare once he's broken down and it's sort of the very end of the episode and they're trying to debug him, basically, and they're walking him through his breakdown. He suddenly breaks character and he turns into a character that he used to be uh, called the professor who is in a horror narrative about a cultist in the desert who becomes a cannibal who's and the the professor was obsessed with Shakespeare. And so he gives this really intense speech where he basically tells Ford, I'm going to get revenge on you. And he, he, he cobbles together quotes from a bunch of different Shakespeare plays that, that kind of strung together sound incredibly terrifying. Right, and we learned that the professor was fond of quoting Shakespeare, John Donne, and Gertrude Stein. So maybe there's going to be some more weird mashups coming. I don't know. (laughs) I want more Gertrude Stein, please. Uh, I think that would be great. So, uh, Charlie Jane, let's talk about some of the themes that you saw in this episode. What, What do you think is one of the really, not plot points, but themes that are being developed, questions that are being raised by this story? Well, obviously, one of the big ones is the nature of memory and what it means to be a person. And there's that whole thing where they keep doing these updates to make them more real. And there's this debate halfway through the episode about, is that a good idea? Do the guests actually want the robots to be real? Because they want to be able to kill and rape and abuse these robots as much as they want. We hear one guy say, I went evil and it was the best two weeks of my life. There's this idea that, you know, they're giving them a subconscious through these, the reveries that kind of allows them to remember things that happened to them previously subconsciously. But that's, you know, it's giving them more of a sense of identity. And they have these identities that are sort of pre-scripted, like Dolores keeps repeating that same monologue that's kind of one of her and and her father has this monologue about like how his the da- his daughter made him who he is and he wouldn't have it any other way but then it kind of breaks down and i think that it's sort of the nature of how these memories make us who we are and how easy it is to break that apart and um how when it becomes more complicated that's when you become more human um but there i know you noticed some other uh themes as well Yeah, I think that the memory issue is really key to the entire story because it's also about making a Western. I mean, this is really, it's almost like a backstage musical where you're seeing, you know, all of the people putting together the show and then you see the show itself. And except this isn't a show, it's, it's an immersive game world. And we're seeing... I love the interactions between the the guy from the narrative department and then the head programmer and then the security people and it's ju- it's exactly what you imagine happening with any super expensive game design firm. There's some terrific scenes where uh, the guy, the, Lee, who's the head of narrative, who everyone hates, comes in and screams at the programmers about how he can't lose uh, 10% of the robots in the park that have been updated because it completely screws up the, the storyline. How many hosts have you updated so far? Maybe 10% of the population. All right. 
We pull all updated hosts until we can figure it out. Are, are you fucking kidding me? That's 200 hosts spread across a dozen active storylines. The guests interrupt your precious storylines all the time when they want to shoot or fuck something. No, when they want to. We sell complete immersion in a hundred interconnected narratives. A relentless fucking experience. Now, you pull one character, the overall story adjusts. You pull 200 at once, and it's a fucking disaster. I mean, what, what, what do you propose we do? Close down? Issue fucking gift certificates? And so that's one of the things I, I really um, appreciate about this story is it's so meta. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. about how memory is important to identity, but it's also about how um, memory is important to storytelling and how history is maybe important or not important to how they're, they're creating this Western. Yeah, and it is, it's supposed to be an immersive journey into this world that is kind of more uh, primitive in some ways. The Western elements are kind of part of what make it more barbaric or more kind of violent. And um, there's a lot of sort of wish fulfillment in getting to take part either as a hero or as a villain in these crazy violent scenarios. And actually, I wanted to talk about the big reveal, uh, which is that Teddy spoiler alert if you haven't seen the first episode teddy the character played by james marsden actually appears to be one of the visitors to the park we, we see him come in on the train he seems excited to be there like he's been away for a while and then it turns out that he's actually one of the robots and it's kind of a great uh pulling the rug on, from under you moment because you sort of think that um he's going to kind of step up and save Dolores and that he's going to, he's playing out some fantasy of his own of being a hero. And he actually is playing out his own heroic fantasy, but he doesn't, you know, he's a robot and he's, his job is to be a hero who ultimately can't win because he can't hurt humans and any human can take him down. So he's sort of a tragic figure who thinks that he's the hero, but actually can never really be the hero. And I think that the way that they kind of, pull that twist is super interesting and and it's a really nice uh kind of reversal of your expectations when you go into it uh, because he's so good looking and so kind of like you know handsome and and dashing and all that stuff yeah and you're expecting that ed harris's character the man in black who still doesn't have a name um we've we've actually watched the first four episodes and we can tell you he still doesn't have a name um but he you, I kept thinking he was a robot because he was yeah. so evil and horrible. And I, I couldn't imagine that that was a character that we were going to follow that was a human being. And then that's how we discover, in fact, that Teddy is a robot because uh, the man in black challenges him to a duel. And, uh, you know, Teddy's bullets don't work. And it's like the man in black is almost like a superhero, you know. Right. He, he's, or a supervillain. He's supervillain. Yeah. Exactly. He's he's indestructible in a, in a terrifying way. And you realize that the human visitors that's part of the lure is that they want to be supervillains and superheroes in a world where anyone can just be killed by them as long as they're a robot. Right. One of the themes we've been sort of talking about that I think is really interesting is that it really seems from the outset that Westworld is going to be a pretty standard robot uprising kind of story. And then as the first episode unfolds and all of this stuff happens, you realize Actually, yes, this is a a robot uprising story in some sense, but it's also a story about uh, gaming and it's it's about the future of gaming and the future of how we tell stories and that that's kind of the real bridge, the real science fictional bridge between the world of the Western and kind of the world of the robots and that you can't, 
as you're watching, you can't really forget the fact that this is ultimately about gaming and all the robots are there in the service of the story. Right. And so um, they're not your traditional robot slaves in that in that sense. You know, they're not um, doing backbreaking labor. They're just there to be killed or raped or, <laughs> <laughs> or shredded in some horrible way. Right. So, um, so Charlie, one of the things that I know a ton of people have been wondering about, because this is an HBO series, is can this be the new Game of Thrones? And clearly, you know, HBO put a lot of money into this. There's a lot of star power. Um, what do you think? I mean, I wrote about this for Wired, um, and it's probably that that article's probably up by now. I feel like this series has a lot of the same ambition and like really the the same kind of great casting and brilliant uh, writing as Game of Thrones. The thing that it doesn't have that Game of Thrones had is the sense that it's sort of a big political narrative that just happens to have dragons in it. Game of Thrones was really, really, really good at kind of easing you into the fantasy elements and kind of starting you off with something that feels like just a great historical drama about regular people having a dynastic succession issue and having like fights and uh, conflicts among themselves that aren't particularly magical in nature. And that was one of the reasons why Game of Thrones really captured everybody's imagination. Whereas I feel like... um, Westworld is much more just great science fiction. It's really well done science fiction that asks a lot of the same questions that other science fiction shows and movies and books and comics have been asking for years about artificial intelligence, about what it means to be human, about exploitation. And it starts off, it rips the bandaid off in the first scene. You see that it's about robots, like in the very first scene. And it's very much exploring that world from the very beginning. And it, and um, so I don't know if it's going to reach the same kind of uh, critical mass or the same kind of iconic status that Game of Thrones did. I suspect that it's probably too nakedly science fiction and too kind of representative of its genre to break out in the way that Game of Thrones did. But I think that it what it is is a really, really deep, smart, disturbing dive into science fictional ideas and into kind of issues around technology that are really big right now that will reward people who, who give it their attention and their time. Why do you think that making it really science fictional means that it can't reach as broad of an audience? I mean, don't you think these are questions that people are asking, especially now with virtual reality becoming, you know, real as opposed to some weird um, fantasy of, of techies? Like, don't you think these are questions that a mainstream audience is asking? I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but I think that um, part of what made Game of Thrones so insanely successful was it's sort of like slowly like boiling the frog approach where it kind of introduced a little bit of fantasy and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and it kind of slowly eased you into that versus this show, which is just throwing you in the deep end and kind of forcing you to engage with a lot of really deep science fictional ideas from like the first five minutes and is also not giving you a lot of, um, you know, there's no like Tyrion Lannister character that you're just like, I want to watch this person goof around and be funny and, and be kind of, um, like comic relief. Yeah. Be, be sort of be heroically, uh, sarcastic, in every episode there's nobody like that that you're like i have to come back to see that person mm-hmm. be a, be so, totally awesome and funny and great there's characters that i like and i'm interested in but there's nobody that i'm just 
you know, instantly rooting for or in love with the way that I think everybody was with Tyrion Lannister after just an episode or two of Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I, I've always felt with Game of Thrones, I mean, of course, I love Tyrion um, <clears throat> as any normal person would, but I always felt like all of the characters were kind of equally horrible. Uh, and of course, there were a few good characters, but those are often the ones that are put on the chopping block. Whereas immediately with Westworld, I felt like, oh, I know who the good characters are. You know, I know that Dolores is going to be a good character. Um, I know that Thandie Newton's character, she plays the madam, um, right. the, the robot madam. I know she's going to be a good guy character. I know Teddy is a good guy. Um, there's some uh, gamers. Some of the players who are introduced um, in later episodes are clearly good guys. And it's great because they actually have a trope uh, that they develop where anyone who enters the theme park um, picks a black hat or a white hat. So you uh, kind of, right. you know, who's a bad guy and who's a good guy. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, you think about the first episode of Game of Thrones, it gives you Ned Stark, who's such a heroic, noble character, and you true. know immediately that he'll do the right thing. It gives you Arya Stark, who's this plucky little girl who wants to learn to sword fight. It gives you all these characters that you kind of want to root for and invest in, in this dark, bleak, horrible world that gets a lot darker and bleaker later. Like the first episode, it ends with the, the horrible thing of, of Bran Stark being thrown off a building. But up until that, it's not as terrible. It's There's a lot of moments of like actual sweetness in the first episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's true. One of the other, uh, a movie actually that's been compared to Westworld a lot is Ex Machina, because that, which is another kind of robot uprising, although on a much smaller scale. Um, what do you think of that comparison? I think it's really interesting. I mean, they obviously share a lot of like surface similarities, just the way in which robot bodies are naked and exposed and treated like pieces of meat in both Ex Machina and Westworld seems very clearly to be kind of commenting on objectification in a very similar way. And uh, they have a lot of the same ideas about personhood and how people, how robots can pretend to be people or, or act as people and how humans uh, respond to that. The crucial difference between Ex Machina and Westworld, which I find really fascinating, is the fact that in Westworld, the robots do not know that they are robots. They believe that they are humans, and they're very confused, as we see in the first episode. They're very confused when people ask them if they're robots or refer to the fact that they're robots. And I think that the idea of robots who believe that they're human, who are struggling with the idea of identity and who they are is a very different and much kind of more gnarly concept than a robot that knows she's a robot and is using the illusion of her humanity to manipulate people, which is what Ex Machina was much more about to a larger extent. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. I think one of the main things the two stories have in common really is that they're about how humans are cruel to robots. Right. They're they're both about they're both about robot abuse essentially. <laughs> uh, but I think that that you really nailed it when you said that Westworld is about robots that don't know that they're robots. I think that's a huge source of our sympathy for the robots, and right. it's also what makes. Uh, all of their trials and tortures so much more upsetting because humans have deliberately created these creatures that think they're human and are forcing them to go through these hideous adventures over and over again. And they've and some of them are just like Teddy. They're built to be murdered. 
Right. They, that is that is his arc, uh, and he's he's trapped in that by the the jerks over in the narrative department. <laughs> who, right. You know, and I I love um, that bit toward the end of the episode where. Uh, the narrative people have to have to fix the narrative really fast and try to like speed the narrative up so that um, the robots who are missing because they've been crashing and breaking down uh, won't won't really be missed because they'll be killed in this crazy shootout. And, <laughs> right. And it's with Hector. With Hector, who I love. I hope Hector becomes Hector an important awesome. character. Yeah, and I like his his relationship with uh, some of the other robots. So I think that. Uh, that, that's just another sort of great bit where we see behind again behind the curtain behind the scenes uh, how the narrative is being reconstructed in real time when you have a bunch of people there and then of course the humans screw up the perfect narrative by shooting Hector when uh, the narrative people didn't think anyone would do that right and then I, I just love Poor that Hector bit. I know he- I'm sure Hector will have his revenge just like the milk guy um, got his revenge so um, finally, we should talk a little bit about uh, the fact that this series uh, is co-produced, co-created by Jonathan Nolan, who created Person of Interest, which is another series uh, that sadly just ended, um, which is about the emergence of artificial intelligence. So one of the things that's interesting is that whereas Person of Interest starts out as your basic procedural right. Um, you know, kind of like we were talking about with Game of Thrones, it starts out kind of not very fantastical or science fictional, um, but then it becomes this crazy story about about an AI who couldn't really be more unlike the robots in Westworld, because in Westworld, the robots are all about being embodied. And it's really important that they have bodies because people have come to pay to shoot them and have sex with them and do other terrible things to them. Um, but in person of interest, um, you know, the machine doesn't have any kind of really any kind of body. Yeah, that's true. And I think that that's a really, really great uh, distinction, like the fact that in person of interest, the machine and it's eventually its rival AI Samaritan are completely disembodied and have to use humans occasionally as mouthpieces, or they have to kind of, at times, you know, broadcast words onto a computer screen or communicate via via telephones or all these other methods, but they never actually just walk among us and, and interact with us like people. And they don't, you know, it kind of takes them further away from being people. They don't think of themselves as people. They think of themselves, the metaphor is much more that they're gods, I guess, versus in this, it's much more that these we're gods, like Anthony Hopkins is God, I guess. He pretty much says that he's God. I mean, he's right. got a serious God complex, right. and he he has a lot of. I I will admit, I am not an Anthony Hopkins fan, and I thought a lot of his speeches were really annoying. I actually um, liked them. I thought his speeches were really good, but you know, I like him. But he does. He he talks about you know raising Lazarus from the dead and how right. how basically what they're doing in the park is um is sort of like being God, not gods, but just God. Yeah, and he at one point the. That malfunctioning robot says, I'm here to meet my maker. And he says, well, you're in luck. Access your current build, please. What is your name? Rose. He's a rose. You say rose. What is your itinerary? 
meet my maker. Oh, you're in luck. And what do you want to say to your maker? My most mechanical and dirty hand. <laughs> that did end the episode pretty much and um, ushers in kind of the the basic conflicts of the series, which are between the the makers of the game the robots and the players of the game. And um, basically the thing that's kind of uh, creating the problem there is, like you were saying earlier, it's memory. Right. And, you know, the the notion that you can commit any atrocities whatsoever against someone if, as long as they don't remember it afterwards. I mean, that's basically, it's a horrible logic. It's like, it's like saying that if you just you know, took a human being and, and did horrible things to them, but then managed to make them not remember it, that would be okay. And it's clearly not. And clearly these things leave traces. And the fact that we know from the first episode that these robots can remember things from like 10 years ago or longer ago from their previous builds, obviously stuff is not really being erased. And obviously this is deep trauma and the show wants us to think about that. And, you know, I sort of wonder if by the time the robots rise up and start killing people, whether we won't just be like, go robots, kill all the humans. Yay. I already felt that way. I felt like <laughs> the most sympathetic characters were the robots. And I think yeah. I think we're meant to feel that way. I do. I do like some of the human characters. I really like the programmers, probably just because I'm prejudiced in favor of programmers. Yeah. But I, I think that their characters are interesting. And I do think that some of the humans are on the side of the robots in a way that hasn't been revealed yet. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to an alliance between the humans and the robots. Let's hope it can all work out. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to analyzing and obsessing over the television shows that we're watching. Right now, we're watching Westworld. I'm Annalee Newitz, Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and my guest this week was Charlie Jane Anders. Please join us next week when we're going to dive into everything that happened in episode two of Westworld. Until then, remember that these violent delights have violent ends.